Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Carrie Lynn Evans welcoming you back to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm looking forward to sharing with you The Varieties of Atheism, Connecting Religion and Its Critics, edited by Professor David Neuheiser. The Varieties of Atheism reveals the diverse non-religious experiences obscured by the combative intellectualism of Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and Christopher Hitchens, and so forth. In fact, contributors contend that narrowly defining atheism as the belief that there is no God misunderstands religious and non-religious persons altogether. The essays gathered here show that just as religion exceeds doctrine, atheism also encompasses every dimension of human life, from imagination and feeling to community and ethics. Contributors offer new, expansive perspectives on atheism's diverse history and possible futures. By recovering lines of affinity and tension between particular atheists and particular religious traditions, this book paves the way for fruitful conversation between religious and non-religious people in our secular age. David Neuheiser is a senior research fellow at the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at Australian Catholic University, with research that explores the role of religious traditions in debates over ethics, politics, and culture. He received a PhD in religion from the University of Chicago and an MPhil in early Christian thought from Oxford. He was on New Books in Secularism in September of 2020 to discuss his book, Hope in a Secular Age, Deconstruction, Negative Theology, and the Future of Faith from Cambridge University Press. And he joins me today to discuss his latest edited collection, The Varieties of Atheism. David, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, Carrie. It's a pleasure. So let's start with you. For NBN listeners who have not yet come across you, tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Yeah, I mean, it's been a long story that's, that's I think, like a lot of scholars of religion, it's intertwined with my, with my life. Um, I, I was raised in the, in the U.S. mostly, and like a lot of Americans, I grew up in a really religious home. And through that experience, I saw that religious traditions have a, a huge effect on how people treat each other. It matters a lot for, for politics. And so that gave me early on a real curiosity about, about how religious traditions function. So initially, I think I was drawn to study religion by a desire to try to understand that dynamic better, how do religious uh, traditions affect the way people live. But those questions became urgent in a new way uh, when I was doing my bachelor's degree uh, with 17 or 18, I had a pretty dramatic break with the religious community that raised me. And in response to that, I found that I needed to think through the tradition I came from in a really serious way in order to put the pieces of myself back together, as it were, in order to think about the ways in which that tradition continued to influence me, even though I wasn't a part of it in the same way, and to figure out how I could live forward with with integrity and that experience 
uh, it, it was really a long and difficult process, but it, it gave me one of my deepest convictions, which is that every tradition and maybe especially religious traditions are really complicated and they have lots of different, uh, different, different dimensions. And for that reason, they can, they can su surprise us. So I, I was raised in a, in a conservative Christian home and I'm definitely not a kind the kind of Christian that I was when I was a kid, but I've found ways to stay connected with that tradition, even though it's not mine in the same way, there are aspects of it that I value. And, uh, one of the ways in which I've sort of come to that, uh, come to that relationship with it is by thinking about the, uh, the sort of at, at the intersection between religion and the secular. So that matters a lot for politics. A lot of my work is about political theology. Uh, but I, I, uh, I found, uh, that the religious traditions that I've studied, I think they offer resources that anyone in the secular society can draw on regardless of their own commitments. Well, you know, your, your biography, I think makes a lot of sense considering the subject matter of this particular book, because the way you describe it, as finding a middle ground kind of between um, the kind of belief that you came out of as a kid and the kind of adjusted belief, if I want to call it that, that mm. you have now, um, seems to really come through in this book, I think, because it's also finding uh, some commonalities and some middle ground. So I want to next ask you about uh, how the idea for this particular book came to be. You were also mentioning to me that you feel there's a trajectory of the development of ideas from your life last book, Hope in a Secular Age, to this one. So tell us about that. Yeah, so the, the story I was just describing about my the sort of genesis of my interest in religion, it, it's kind of a common story. I feel like lots of people, uh, <laughs> when they grow into adulthood, they have to renegotiate their relationship to their, to their family, their parents, where they come from. And for me, because religion, Christianity in particular, was such a huge part of my upbringing, it was sort of focused around around that. And one of the things that I, I gained, I think, through that process was, um, I, I think I saw that it was possible to stay connected across difference in in a way that is difficult, um, but uh, but really enriching. So you know, in I have a great relationship with my parents, even though we've had some hard moments. Other people from um, from that time in my life. And one of the things that, one of the threads that runs through my work is, is this, uh, d desire to, to attend to the sort of conversations that I think you were, you were pointing to, um, just because I've seen in my life that, that they are really important, but also possible when it, uh, seems like it's not possible. So my first, my first book plays, played out at the intersection of the religious and the secular. I, um, I focus on a medieval Christian monk, uh, Dionysius the Areopagite, and Jacques Derrida, who's a um, 20th century philosopher, often um, called an atheist with a sort of Jewish heritage. And the view that I came to over the course of thinking through this project is that they're really different, these two thinkers. They have different commitments. They they were formed by different con contexts, geographically and in, uh, in history. But I think that they have a pretty deep affinity in, in terms of uh, their understanding of, of what it means to keep hope. There's a certain sort of instability that they're sensitive to that they think characterizes human life. And 
but they, I think, articulate uh, the possibility and importance of of um, holding commitments that are that are uncertain in the face of this kind of vulnerability. So my first book tries to think through with this understanding of hope in conversation with this Christian theologian and this atheist philosopher, how, how that understanding of hope can help us to think about political issues that are urgent today. But one of the sort of uh, broader themes that's in the background there is just how, whether and how people who aren't religious uh, can, can have a fruitful conversation with people who are. One of the things I realized over the course of, you know, the 10 or 11 years since I got my PhD is that throughout my uh, trajectory as a scholar, I've found that thinkers who aren't religious at all have helped me to understand the religious traditions that I work on. I found that I I couldn't really understand uh, religion without thinking in conversation with these atheist thinkers. And on the other hand, in order to understand atheists like Derrida, Friedrich, Friedrich Nietzsche, Marx, Feuerbach, and others, I found that I couldn't understand their atheism without bringing an understanding of religious traditions because they were in a really intense and powerful conversation with these, with these traditions. So this, this edited collection that we're talking about is really my attempt to think through uh, that um, sort of tense but I think really fruitful conversation between atheists and religious thinkers. And basically, uh, it, uh, it is, uh, c- came out of my desire to think about that nexus of questions with some of my favorite scholars of religion and philosophy. Yes, and I can't wait to get into it with you because it's just some of the most interesting uh, ideas coming from directions that um, are new to me for the most part. So before we do, though, uh, I wanted to ask you about the afterword written by Constance M. Fury. She talks about the attitude of deep inquiry at the conference that you organized that was the inciting incident for this edited collection. And she describes it in evocative terms as a st- as staging a serious drama of debate going well beyond the simplistic polemics of the new atheists, for example, and their opponents. Uh, In fact, the title of her afterword is The Drama of Atheism. So personally, I love conferences. Um, I loved getting a sense of the atmosphere of this one. So I was hoping maybe you could elaborate on that. Do you agree with her characterization? Yeah, no, I think she really captures that energy. And she, yeah, she's a brilliant scholar in her own right, but, you know, beautiful writer. And one of the things I appreciate about her afterward is that it situates the the intellectual conversation that occupies the bulk of the book in in the context of this conference that was the book's genesis. Because that's one of the things that I think is really special about the collection, that it it, it emerged from genuine collaboration. So the the I think there are eight uh, essays in the collection apart from mine, and each of the authors was thinking together and also thinking with, I think there were another 10 or 12 people who attended the conference. And I believe really strongly that the best conferences require uh, personal attention as well as scholarly attention. I think that to attempt to think new thoughts is a vulnerable thing and it requires people to um, hold instincts and um, and ideas that they've developed over over time that matter a lot to them, hold them open to, to change by thinking with another person. And so for that to happen, I think it works best if the people who are having these conversations have a kind of trust for each other and an interest in each other. 
and that's the thing I think that that happened at this conference that as Constance describes it that was really for me it was just a real gift to be in this group of 20 of the smartest people that I know on these on these questions and yeah people people really really tried to think together about each other's works so one of the things that um formally was important is that it was a smallish group as i've said around 20 and the the eight papers were were circulated ahead of time which meant that we had um we had ample time to discuss each one in detail you know there was real, like an hour of really thorough feedback with a with a thoughtful prepared response to each one but apart from all of that and i guess this is the thing i want to imagine i want readers to imagine as they read the book is that we also spent a lot of time eating and drinking and walking together. And I think that sort of, that sort of spirit of community really, really infuses the ethos of the book. Oh, that's wonderful. So let's turn now to the introduction. This one's written by you. And you write that you often see both religion and atheism portrayed in oversimplified two-dimensional ways. And that part of your project with this book is to counter that and to draw attention to the nuance and variability found in each, both religion and atheism. So clearly this book will elaborate on the diversity within atheism at length, but I want to ask you to flesh out this assertion about stereotyped ideas of religion and how that in turn contributes to narrow views of atheism. For example, you mentioned that religious scholars have suggested it is misleading to equate religion with belief. And I'll admit, I think I'm guilty of that, but I can't really imagine any definition of religion that isn't centered on belief, specifically a belief in a deity uh, or some kind of metaphysical uh, forces or powers. So when you say this, are you talking about, um, or are they talking about non-theistic religions when they say that, or would you um or would they suggest that the Christian religion can be separated from belief in the divine in some way? Help me understand. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a really important question. And there's a strand of scholarship in the field of religious studies that's really exploring the problem that you're, you're pointing to about what would it mean to think about religion that it is, is about more than belief, maybe even not centrally about belief. So scholars like Talal Asad, uh, have have argued really influentially that the concept of religion that we work with was invented in the um, 17th century in Europe. And it was invented at, at a time that there was a lot that was shifting, really significant cultural shifts were, were um, going on at the time. And partly for that reason, Assad and these other scholars, um, they, they argue that the the definition of religion in terms of belief reflects a particular vision of religion that's informed by a particular religious tradition. So in their, in their view, Protestant Christians, Protestantism was emerging uh, a bit before this development in, in Europe. Protestant Christians were reacting against other Christian traditions that they were in conversation with in order to argue that faith consisted in a belief that was essentially sort of personal and private. And, uh, and that has really, really uh, shaped the understanding of religion that emerged a bit, a bit later and that continues to be recognized in law. Uh, Winifred Sullivan has written really brilliant um, stuff about, about the way in which this Protestant understanding of religion continues to 
shape policy in societies that are ostensibly secular. And one of the difficulties, as she and Assad and others point out, is that because this understanding of religion as belief is enshrined in legal systems in, in many Western secular societies, it disadvantages groups like Muslims and Roman Catholics and Orthodox Jews that locate their religious identities in, in terms of public practice that's communal rather than private, personal conviction. So debates about religious freedom, this is Sullivan's uh, focus, um, by imposing this Protestant definition in terms of belief that makes it harder for other uh, types of religious communities to argue that their, um, that their traditions count uh, legally as, as religious. So that's just sort of broad background. The, the thing that this collection is trying to do in light of the scholarship of religion is really an attempt to, to bring these tools that have been developed in, in the study of religion to think about how that can help us to understand atheism. So, um, and I could say a lot about this, but I guess really briefly, and we can explore anything more if you want, but um, I think the sort of uh, professional atheists that, that have the, the sort of most prominent place in, in the public discussion of atheism, they are critical of religious beliefs in particular, arguing that they're irrational and unscientific. And that work has done important things in certain respects, also politically in, in relation to law, that kind of advocacy. But the concern that lies behind this collection, the concern that I have is that it flattens what atheism means. So just as what, what religion means gets, gets flattened and reduced when it's made just a matter of belief, uh, it, um, a- a- atheism, I think, is a lot more complicated and a lot more vibrant. There are many varieties of atheism. That's the key point of the collection. Um, and I think just to give a brief example, I mean, we'll talk more in, uh, in detail about the collection, but I think when you think about the, the, um, the way in which religious uh, traditions get expressed in terms of um, in, in sacred writings, they're often, and I think, you know, to even take the sort of pr- Protestant Christian Holy Scripture, it's not just a statement of of assertions that people could hold privately. Uh, the scripture that Protestants uh, held to be um, holy includes poetry, uh, there's narrative, law, um, and you know, apocalypse, really oblique books like the book of Job, or the book of Ecclesiastes that challenge uh, uh, established moral instincts. And all of this is formative for what even Protestant Christianity means. And so one of the things this collection is trying to think through is what would it mean to think about atheism in that sort of expanded perspective as being about more than just statements that people affirm about the non-existence of God. What do we mean to think about atheism um, as involving uh, practice and moral formation and aesthetics and all sorts of other things, the things that make life vivid? Right. That does make a lot of sense. That segues nicely into my next question, too, because I was going to ask you about uh, some etymology, as most good scholarly work often begins with. (laughs) So what is the origin of the word atheist and how has it come down to us today? I know it actually has a fairly storied history. Yeah, I mean, it's a a word that um, has, has a really important history. But one of the things that my introduction to the book tries to show is that 
paying attention to the genealogy of the term atheist, to, to pay attention to that, to that history, helps us to, th to think about atheism in broader perspective in the way that I've described. So uh, it's, it's widely known that the, the English word atheist comes to us from the Greek word atheos, which applies a negative prefix, the alpha, to the word for God, theos. And I think this is a clue, sort of just to sort of step back from the history for a moment, that uh, from, the, from the outset, what atheism means shifts in relation to what, what God, what theos, uh, is being resisted or critiqued or negated or denied. Um, so in, the, in ancient Greece, um, maybe the most famous example is the philosopher Socrates was accused of atheism on the grounds that he didn't believe in the gods of the state, but he had other uh, new divinities that, that, he, that he worshiped. And this is a really important example because Socrates was considered to be an atheist, not because he denied the existence of any god. In this accusation, he's said to have divinities of his own. It's just that in relation to the, the gods that were normative in his society, he, he counted as an atheist because he denied or critiqued, according to his accusers, uh, those gods in particular. So something significant uh, happens that's similar in, in the uh, common era. So in the, in the second century CE, under Roman rule, Christians, Christianity was just emerging in this period, Christians were often in, accused by their Roman contemporaries of being atheos in this sense. So again, clearly they believed in a god, they believed in the, the Christian god, but they were seen as godless by, by uh, Roman polytheists because they didn't live according to Roman standards of piety. Um, so there's a, there's a lot that happens between the second century CE and the, and the early modern period, but it's in the 16th century that the, the term atheist has an especially important shift because it enters European languages at that, at that point. And here again, it, it doesn't mean a sort of uh, belief that there's no God in general. It was actually used by, by different Christian communities, Protestant and Catholic Christians would accuse each other of atheism because each of them thought that the other was godless. They didn't, they didn't uh, uh, live in a way that expressed piety towards the right God in their, in their view. Uh, so this, this centrality of ethics in the way that atheism was understood, it continues in the early modern period. But uh, something shifts in the 18th century. So until that point, atheism was almost always an accusation that was directed towards one's opponents. It wasn't something people claimed for themselves as a positive identity. But in the 18th century, philosophers like Denis Diderot, Paul-Henri Dolbach began to claim that they were atheists. And uh, a century later, lots of people were doing the same same thing. So one of the things that, that uh, I think is especially exciting, it's the sort of way in which I try to frame the collection, is thinking about the, the cultural transformations that enable atheism to become a positive identity in, in this way. So rather than, than uh, having connotations of, of immorality or impiety, uh, it, it becomes more like 
what we understand today as a, as an identity that people it shapes the way people understand their lives um and yeah i th i think that's something new in a way that's important to pay attention to so you write that your purpose is to show that, quote, atheism is a polyphonic assemblage that develops in conversation with religious traditions. In each case, it reflects the particularities of context, whether that context is European or otherwise, like you were talking about the theos in the A, theos, is uh, different from time to time. So that's going to change how, uh, how atheism looks, makes sense. So with that goal in mind, let's turn to the topic of how this book is structured. Can you tell us about your strategy? strategies here? Yeah, so the, the sort of uh, broad impulse that informs the, the body of the book is, is I think the, the thing that I've described. So just like religion is about more than belief, but it includes moral formation and ritual practice and lots of other things, uh, the chapters explore the way in which something similar might be true of atheism. So each of them focuses on a broad theme like atheism and politics and atheism and uh, science, atheism, and literature, but each of the chapters tries to unpack that that broader theme by focusing on a, a particular example that the author of that chapter is especially excited about. So the collection is trying to say something broad about how atheism is inflected across these different domains, politics, science, so forth. But one of the things I love about the collection is that each of the chapters is really um, energized, is motivated by the particular interests and expertise of of its author. And one of the things I think that brings to light is the thing that you were that you were just pointing to, which is that atheism is is contextual and uh, polyphonic. As assemblage is a fancy word that anthropologists use, but in this context, I think the thing I'm trying to point to is that. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a complex. That's, uh, atheism isn't just motivated by the desire to be rational and scientific, but it's also motivated by affects that include curiosity and defiance and anxiety and delight and anger and sympathy and skepticism and lots of other things. So um, the, uh, the, the chapters are organized in relation to th sort of three broad, uh, broad groups. The first of them really focuses on expanding our understanding of atheism along the lines that I've described. So uh, each chapter revisits a, a key influential example. So the first chapter thinks about Albert Einstein as a representative of, of the importance of science for conversations about atheism. The second chapter focuses on Friedrich Nietzsche, who's a really exemplary, influential 19th century atheist. And the third chapter looks at David Hume, who is one of the earliest and, and I think most influential critics of religion in the 18th century, um, at least in, in this sort of modern form of, of atheism. So the second set of chapters shifts focus a little bit to think about how, in light of this conversation about the, about the variety, the breadth and complexity of atheism, how can religious and non-religious communities better engage each other? What does this mean for, for creating those, those conversations across difference that I I was talking about at the start. And then the third and final set of chapters is thinking about the way in which that, that very boundary between atheism and religion is actually unstable. It complicates how those lines are often drawn. All right. Excellent. 
So yeah, so let's get into it. Uh, The first chapter explores the relationship between atheism and science through the lens of Albert Einstein's beliefs. Um, So we're really off with a bang with this one. This chapter is written by Mary Jane Rubenstein. So maybe let's start, uh, start by telling us a little bit about her and why she was a good fit for this topic. Yeah, Mary Jane Rubenstein is a is a scholar I've really admired for a, for a long time, and uh, she's someone that I, um, yeah, I, I mean, I feel like she models the kind of scholarship that I aspire to. She has written a bunch of really interesting and really really important books about modern religious thought, focusing focusing especially on science and religion, but. Whereas the conversation about science and religion is sometimes uh, sometimes a bit dry, sort of focusing on uh, questions of of um, you know what counts as rational and how that how that shifts um, over time. Mary Jane is interested in those things, but she she uh, also is is uh, has really interesting things to, things to say about mythology. So her her most recent book, which just came out, is a great example of this. The title's Astrotopia. And the thing that it does is to look look at the the way in which we we talk and think about the colonization of space. Uh, people like I don't know Elon Musk sending rockets uh, to to Mars or wherever he wants to, to send them. Um, how that uh, is similar in some ways to the way in which the um, the the planet that we, that we currently live on has been colonized. And to think about how in which both of those colonial projects are motivated, uh, not just by, you know, rationality and all that stuff, but by there's a mythology that animates them, a sort of dream um, of, you know, final frontier and, and all of that. And one of the things that characterizes her work is thinking about the way in which these, this sort of mythological dimension, um, taking it seriously can help us to think about um, like really important questions, like how do we survive on this planet that we're in the process of of destroying? So she brings brings that um, that set of expertise along with uh, a writing style that I mean it really bounces. I think she, her writing is always just a pleasure to read, and so so yeah, her her chapter on Einstein, I I just I just love it. Excellent. So. I feel like many people today consider Einstein an atheist. I was trying to think of what I, I've myself gleaned these kind of um, public mythologies about, about Einstein's views on God, which are kind of says something in itself, the fact that these are out there. Um, But I think the, the overarching narrative is that he is an atheist, even though he made a stray comment or two that's given fodder to those who want to claim him for Christianity. Um, And this chapter actually argues he's more of a pantheist which is an interesting take. More than this, however, is how his theories contributed to the controversy and turbulence that characterized the discourse of the early 20th century around the relationship between science and religious belief, which is a super interesting topic in itself. So uh, yeah, please tell us about this. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as you say, I think Einstein has been a really important example in the discussion of atheism today. So people like Richard Dawkins and uh, Christopher Hitchens, they claim Einstein as a, as a sort of exemplary atheist, partly because he's been so, uh, his, his thinking as a scientist has been so influential, sort of changed the way that we understand the world in really, in really deep ways. And for the reasons that I think you're pointing to, 
he's clearly not a sort of orthodox religious believer in the uh, in the way that we tend to think about what it means to be um, uh, a Christian or a Jew who who believes all the right things. But as you say, he makes these stray comments like, I don't know, God does not play dice, dice with the universe and uh, other, other things like that, that, that complicate the picture. And the thing that Mary Jane Rubenstein's chapter does is to really explore that, that uh, complexity. So she situates Einstein's thinking about, about the, the cosmos in the context of an old debate over pantheism, which runs at least from Spinoza in the early modern period. And one of the things she shows is that pantheism was often thought to be a form of atheism. And in fact, when Einstein was called an atheist by his contemporaries, as he, as he sometimes was, sometimes that was because they thought that he was a pantheist. So pantheism and atheism, uh, in many cases, have been uh, yeah, have been identified in some in some way. Pantheism was often seen to be a type of of atheism because it doesn't believe in a. Um, I think you know before we started recording, you referred to it as the you know sky wizard. Uh, you know, God is like powerful being who who controls things. So Einstein didn't believe in that kind of God. But one of the things that Rubenstein un- unpacks is that uh, Einstein's sense of the uh, of the cosmos, and, and even maybe thinking about the cosmos as being divine in some sense, it complicates, as she so, shows, what both theism and atheism might mean. So he doesn't he doesn't fit into either category cleanly, and uh, that's that's one of the reasons why I thought it was such an important chapter to begin the conversation because um, because that is exactly what the collection as a whole meant, means to explore. Excellent. So next we have a chapter about the practical effects of abstract beliefs on society. Andre Willis approaches this topic by examining philosophers David Hume and Richard Rorty, who problematize the notion of theism and atheism as mutually exclusive categories of thought. So continuing this theme here, tell us about Willis and these ideas. Yeah, uh, Andre Willis is, uh, you know, another another thinker that I've really learned a lot um, from. He, his first book was on uh, David Hume and Hume's relationship to to religion, which Willis argues is a lot more complicated. Hume, kind of like Einstein in a way, Hume is often taken to be an exemplary atheist because he, you know, he has this famous essay on miracles, for instance, which uh, uh, un- unsettles claims that that. Um, especially Christians in his uh, his contemporary Christians would make about miraculous events, and so Hume, for that reason, you know, he he's 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 both understood as an atheist, but he's also inspired a lot of late, later atheists. So in his first book, Willis argues that Hume's relationship to religion is a lot more complicated. That maybe like Rubenstein argues in relation to Einstein, his uh, Hume isn't a religious believer according to some standards of orthodoxy but but Willis argues that there's um, there's there's a, maybe a version of religion a sort of rational religion or what Hume sometimes calls true religion that Hume remains interested in which isn't isn't identified with a particular religious orthodoxy but it's also not a pure rejection of um, of the idea of divinity according to according to Willis so he brings Willis brings that 
expertise in Hume and early modern philosophy, more broadly into this essay, which is the second one on atheism and, and society. And one of the things he does is place Hume in a conversation with the, the uh, American pragmatist thinker from the 20th century, Richard Rorty, who thinks uh, in, in a way that Willis argues is similar to Hume about the effects that that what we say and what we think have. So rather than simply uh, considering ideas, for instance, theological ideas about God as um, statements that are meant to sort of correspond to the world, Hume and Rorty, according to Willis, are both interested in, in what these, what these um, ideas, what these statements, what they do in the world. And uh, that, uh, according to Willis, he argues that that, that informs how Hume's really pointed uh, criticism of a certain kind of religion can help us to think about about what what a, a, a true religion that uh, that is informed by the kind of rational philosophical perspective that Hume, Hume and Rorty both care about what that might look like by focusing on on pragmatics and especially how religious ideas and atheist ideas for that matter function socially. So Dennis Turner writes chapter three, Atheism and Power, examining Nietzsche's brand of atheism roundabout by way of the question, is Nietzsche a nominalist? So this chapter I found is a bit of a crash course in epistemology. Can you give us the Reader's Digest version? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I won't go into a lot of length because I think it's something people need to experience. Um, it's... <laughs> It, it, it's an essay. D Dennis is is one of my oldest and dearest friends, and one of the things about his writing that I I am just in awe of is, um, yeah, there's always a kind of propulsive momentum. It's, it's very easy, I think, to to follow along with him. He he often writes and reflects in a way that's really conversational and hospitable. But as you say, in this essay, he's dealing with a lot of really complicated ideas. So medieval nominalism is an important theoretical, philosophical movement. And what he's doing is this really complicated thing about asking uh, how this arcane medieval tradition, which is about epistemology, how that how that can help, help us to think about what is going on in Friedrich Nietzsche's a critique of religion, and I, I mean, I think every line of it is is uh, is is fun, and as a, as a whole, it's quite quite an exciting essay. But the key thing I just want to emphasize briefly here is that, in a way that's that's similar to, to what I described in relation to Andre Willis's essay, Turner argues that for Nietzsche, the the sort of atheism of someone like Dawkins, who uh, is f focused only on sort of making sure that your beliefs are are rational and scientific. According to Turner, Nietzsche thinks that sort of atheism is is a thin and pitiful thing. So according to Turner, Nietzsche thinks that to to really to really commit to atheism requires political transformation that that if uh, if people were really atheist in Nietzsche's view, society uh, and our politics, would would work really differently. So there's a sort of theory of power that, uh, according to Turner, lies behind Nietzsche's nominalism, and that's the thing in the context of the sort of broader arc of the conversation in the collection that I I think is so important because again Nietzsche is one of these one of these atheists that's always uh, always trotted out 
in lists of exemplary atheists, uh, many from the 19th century. But uh, according to Turner, Nietzsche is radical in a way that a lot of atheists today don't really reckon with because in his view, according to Turner, these atheists aren't, aren't willing to complicate, to contemplate the sort of social transformation, political transformation that, that Nietzsche envisions. Excellent. Okay, so in the next chapter on atheism and ethics, uh, it takes up the accusation by the four horsemen of the new atheists about the social and individual damage caused by theism. So what's especially interesting is that its author, Susanna Ticciati, admits she writes as a theologian, but takes a position uh, takes up a position to critique the theologians' responses to Dawkins, Harris, Dennett, and Hitchens, the aforementioned four horsemen, um, because she finds their responses lacking. So tell us about Ticciati and then about how she frames this debate in terms of the relationship between truth and transformation. Yeah, so with this with this chapter, we've sort of moved into the, the second of the three sections of the book that I described a moment ago. And one thing that's different about this chapter and the next one is that both Ticciati and, and Henning Tickmeyer, they both write as people that are that are committed and concerned for a particular religious tradition. And that's different. So the first three chapters um, are sort of th- re- rethinking where atheism comes from in order to help us to see it differently. But this chapter and the next one are really focusing on uh, the, the way in which uh, or they're rather they're asking how can religious communities and communities of people who aren't religious atheists, how, how can those conversations go better? What would be required? And they give very different answers. So Ticciati is a, is a really uh, sophisticated Christian theologian. He's one of the most lucid people that, that I know. And this chapter in a way that I think is really insightful, it, it argues that the, the, most influential theological responses to atheism actually misrecognize the type of conversation that's at stake. So in her view, both the theologians, but also the most influential atheists, they, they often sort of say that their conversation is about, about um, theological claims, about um, making rational statements, thinking rational things about the world. But Ticciani argues that for people like Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and uh, Sam Harris and others, that these influential atheists actually are motivated by an ethical concern that has political implications. So they're worried about, for instance, the way that uh, children are treated in in societies within which a religious tradition of one kind is is uh, dominates or hegemonic. So one of the things Tichiata tries to do is to is to um, sort of draw to the surface this ethical motivation that lies in these um, in these influential atheists and to think about what it would mean for Christian theologians of which she's one to take that seriously to respond on that level so the main thing she's trying to do is to reorient the conversation to think about how there are good reasons in her view within Christian theology to also understand um, tr- truth to understand the things that people uh, think as being related in a really deep way to ethics. And it's on that level, thinking about the, the link between truth and ethical transformation, that she thinks a richer conversation between religious people and, and atheists will be possible. 
Excellent. Let's have more of that. I agree with her. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So in the next chapter, Atheism and Metaphysics, Henning Tetmeyer makes the argument that Christian thought requires clarity on the question of metaphysics. I would agree with that as well. So he's getting here into Heidegger's arguments about ontotheology, or uh, that's that would be the philosophical inquiry into the nature of the Christian God's being. And he asserts that Christian theology ought to make claims that can be educated by rational argument. So I can see how you're saying these two um, chapters are related in, in the kinds of questions that they're asking. Um, but I also feel like Tetmeyer is asking some really provocative questions or implying some really provocative things. Do you agree with that assessment? Uh, so tell us about this Tetmeyer. Yeah, yeah. His essay is, is provocative, I agree. And I think it's intended to to provoke. So uh, I think Tetmeyer is, is a philosopher. He's uh, based at uh, KU Leuven in Belgium. And I guess one thing that, to emphasize at this point is that this group of, of collaborators in this collection is really international. So I'm based in Australia, Henning's in uh, in Belgium, Susanna Ticciati is based in the UK, uh, and the next author that we'll discuss, Devin Singh, is based in the US. People are coming from different geographic contexts, and that, as well as disciplinary contexts, and that, I think, adds a, a sort of rich diversity. So given his philosophical location, his philosophical interests, Henning Techmeyer, as you've suggested, he gives a response to this overarching question for the section, how can atheists and religious people talk to each other better? He gives a response that's really different from that of Susanna Ticciati. It doesn't contradict it exactly, but it's at the very least uh, a significantly different emphasis. So he, he's responding, uh, uh, Techmeyer, to a, a strand of thinking about atheism that tries to tries to bring atheism closer to religious thought by thinking about religious traditions that argue that God is unknowable and that and that for that reason theological language about God needs to be subject to a kind of negation a rigorous kind of self-critique this is a tradition that's often called uh, apathetic which just is the Greek word for unsaying sometimes it's called negative theology it's what my first book is about actually uh, is is uh, on precisely this this relationship between apophatic or negative theology and atheism, and so for that reason, I did find his chapter really really provocative because he presents a, a different reading of that relationship than than my own. But he he uh, I think uh, has helped me to see this relationship in in new ways because he's responding to uh, I guess he's showing the. Um, the weakness of some attempts, not, not all attempts, but some attempts to draw apophaticism and atheism closer, to, closer together. And one of the things he, he tries to take really seriously is the demand for rationality that actually motivates a lot of the conversation about atheism, uh, pro or con. And so in his view, he, he wants to sort of set the conversation between atheism and Christianity as the religious tradition he's most concerned with. He wants to set that conversation on a sort of new new foundation to give it a new beginning by by trying to clarify to to sort of um, sh- shift shift the lens so that the so that it's in crisper focus to clarify the uh, the significance of the theoretical claims that are being made on both both sides. 
that's what he thinks is is needed for this conversation to go better than it has. Excellent. I agree with him as well. All right. So let's turn now to the chapter on atheism and politics. So Devin Singh begins this chapter by asserting that the story of Jesus's ascension after resurrection is, in fact, a story of Christ's abandonment of the church, speaking of provocative claims, and that this is a dimension of the Christian narrative and theology that continues to be majorly overlooked and underdeveloped. So he suggests this creates a broader absence of a king kind of social condition that extends to earthly politics and even generates an unacknowledged theological source of Christian atheism. So, wow, that sounds like a lot. Uh, I would go so far as to even say like a lot of Christians, I think, would find those fighting words. So um, first, I'll ask you to unpack Singh's ideas here, and then I'll ask you more about him. Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I think you're right. The, the chapter is meant to meant to be sort of startling, maybe especially for the religious Christian communities that you that you have in mind. Um, and it's one of the things that I really appreciate about Singh's work. So his first book is a really brilliant book um, called Divine Currency. That's on uh, religion and, and economy, and focusing especially on early Christian texts and how that can help us to think about you know, the relationship between religion and economics, which is a really important nexus. And he, he brings a lens to that conversation that I think is, uh, is really, really helpful. So he, he has a background in the study of early Christian thought. He's a, he's a really serious and thoughtful scholar. And so he, in his first book, he, he sort of thinks about how these early Christian texts read really carefully and rigorously can help us to address these questions, some questions that we have today about, um, about economics and the power that it has, especially by thinking about how the power of economy today is, is inflected or it echoes um, re- religious traditions. And uh, yeah, g- God and money, not the same, but important to think about together in his view. So this chapter in this, in our collection is exploring, exploring uh, a similar nexus. So he think he's thinking about the relationship between atheism and politics by arguing as, as you've said, that, uh, that the response response to the, the, the life and then the absence of Jesus Christ in the Christian new Testament just displays a kind of anxiety about the, about the abandonment of, of the church. So he talks about the story of the ascension in the Christian New Testament, where Jesus is said to be sort of taken up into the clouds. And it's often, as he describes, it's often taken as kind of a, you know, a sign of the triumphant importance of Christianity. It was often, you know, associated with political theological movements um, that, that followed that, uh, that sort of invest earthly power with divine authority. But Singh, Singh points out that that there are uh, reverberations of this of this event. Jesus was here, and then he wasn't. And in his view, Christians were struggling, both in the New, New Testament text, but also in the centuries following, with what this abandonment meant. So, uh, yeah, he, he, what he says about that in terms of the absence of God and the sort of void in, at the heart of Christianity, I think... Um, it exemplifies what this third and final section of the collection is trying to do. So as I've said, this section of the collection is, is trying to 
rethink the relationship between atheism and particular religious traditions in order to complicate it, to show that it's not just a sort of simple opposition between capital R religion on the other hand, on the one hand, capital A atheism on the other hand, but that particular atheisms are in a, in a sort of tense relationship with particular religious traditions. And so the way that Singh makes that case is by arguing that there's something like atheism at the heart of Christian thought and experience insofar as uh, the Christian God-man isn't there. And as you say, it's provocative, but I think it's a really, it's a really helpful st- stimulant to, to seeing these familiar debates in a new way. Yeah, I agree. I, I feel like it would be hard to argue, but naming it is, um, I don't know. Um, I don't know. It made me feel a bit sad, but I think it's true, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. um, so anyways, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But um, no, I, I found, I, let me, oh, sorry. Let me, let me just add, Carrie. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think, I think the sort of sadness and the melancholy, I think is the thing that Singh is trying to bring to light. Absolutely. In a way that I really appreciate because, um, yeah, human experience is complicated, you know, like everyone has to deal with loss and absence. The loss of a loved one is an especially clear example of that. But there are other, other ways in which our hearts get broken. And one of the things I think he's trying to take seriously is how something like that experience is reflected in the history of Christian Christian thought. So rather than, rather than sort of, I guess, throwing a blanket of, of uh, sort of triumphalist, presence and authority, as some religious traditions do, to sort of adopt this um, stance of invulnerability. Singh is just trying to take seriously what the what the absence of Jesus in the New Testament might mean. And yeah, for that reason, as you say, it's startling, sad, I think also kind of kind of beautiful, but at the very least, um, it's provocative, worth thinking with. It's definitely worth thinking about. It makes me think of all of the um, prayer books that uh, are for sale in Christian bookstores that center questions like, uh, why does God, why does it seem like God doesn't answer prayer? Or there's so much of that um, that alludes to exactly what he's talking about, a feeling of abandonment. And that's where I guess Mm. I feel like a sense of sympathy and sadness. Um, even though, you know, I'm coming to the situation with a completely different perspective, you can still feel for that humanity, you know, but I think that because just if you take all those books in the Christian bookstores as any indication, I think what sings really onto something like this is a through line. This is Mm. just under the surface. And yet, boy, oh boy, I don't think you'd want to you know, there'd be some people who'd, some Christians who'd be really, really uncomfortable with you trying to point it out or trying to um, sort of suggest, as Singh does, that it has effects on mm. on the way people organize themselves or do things. So, yeah, I just, wow, what a chapter. Yeah, no, I, 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 I love the way that you've put it there. And I mean, just to sort of tie this back to where I started, because I talked in a way that's unusually personal about my biography, but I think the, the thing that Singh is bringing to light here is the way in which religious traditions are complicated, like just, just as people are complicated in the way that we f- feel sometimes joy and elation, but also grief and, and sadness and absence, that that tr- traditions of thought and practice like like. Christianity and like atheism, they there's more than one thing going on. And that's something in my own life I had to realize in order to try to be a whole person in the way that I've described. But I think one of the things his chapter 
uh, gives expression to is the possibilities that exist within classic Christian tradition that sometimes get overlooked. Yes, exactly. Um, and so you just mentioned your biography. Um, and so I wanted to ask you about Sings because just like with, uh, like we, we did an interview together back in 2020, uh, about your first book, Hope in a Secular Age. And we were just chatting before the interview here. And, uh, and I realized I, I don't really, or I guessed wrong the first time I don't, didn't really know where you came from on the yeah. spectrum between, uh, Christian and atheist, partly because, you wouldn't expect an atheist to spend their career working on Christian ideas so intimately connected with Christian theology. Um, and so similarly, I sort of found Singh a bit of a puzzle. Like, where is he coming from, right? Because, again, he's a person who clearly works with Christian theology and philosophy and so forth. And yet, he's willing to ask questions as if he were an atheist. So, um, I mean... His ideas stand on their own. There's always the argument that the author's biography doesn't necessarily matter, but just because it is interesting to learn about the context that foster and nurture ideas. Um, also, I mean, he has a Sikh last name. He has a background living in many different countries. So I just thought, wow, what a whole lot of influences coming together. I wonder how he ended up um, doing his academic work centered on Christianity. Um, yeah. So you mentioned that you do know him fairly well. So can I ask you about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Devin is another another person in this collection that I'm lucky enough to count as a, as a really dear friend. Um, and I think one of the things, I mean, as I've said, I think his scholarship is compelling on its own right. It's brilliant. He's a great writer. But in the way that you've pointed to his, his, his story is also really, really interesting. And, and he's lived in various places. Um, and he incorporates at, at, in the way that I think you've pointed to more than one, more than one tradition, more than one set of, set of influences. And I think for that reason, I mean, maybe it's easier to talk about, I guess, uh, my own biography rather than, rather than to sort of, um, speak for him. But I feel like his, his story is one that I, I, res I respond to, I relate to, because I think both of us, um, we sort of have this relationship to Christianity. We think it's important uh, for the world. Um, it's also important for us because of our biographies. But both of us, I think, are interested in exploring the way in which uh, Christianity is more more complicated and probably also just more interesting than a lot of its its defenders make it out to be. So you you mentioned. The way in which you found it hard in our in our previous conversation to sort of peg where I am, like you know, I'm not obviously a sort of representative of of Christian theology. That's not how I present my work, not what I'm interested in doing. But I also I also don't, as you said, I was glad to hear you say it that I I don't seem like an official atheist either. That's not the sort of um, it's not the sort of label uh, that my work uh, operates under, and I think. What I'm interested in is something like what you've identified in in uh, Devin's chapter here, which is, I guess, to sort of to think about to think about Christian tradition and, in a similar way, traditions around atheism, in a way that's informed by my own experience of the complexity of my own life, because as I've said, my story includes all these different dimensions, both both the sort of conservative Christianity Christianity I was raised in, reading Nietzsche when I was 
19, 18, uh, you know, like changed how I understood the world. And for that reason, I, in, in describing, in, in thinking about what my work is for, I'm, I'm not so interested in whether it's situated within atheism or within um, Christianity. I, the, the thing that I think is interesting and exciting, what I, tr well, what I want my work to do, is to help people who might identify on either side of that, um, of that conversation, to, to help them to see their own tradition, but also others' traditions in a new light. Because as I've now said repeatedly in this conversation, I think both religious traditions and atheist traditions are a lot more, a lot more vibrant and varied than people often, often uh, make them out to be. So just looping back around to, to Devin Singh, when I think about, about his work and the sort of different uh, experiences and influences that are reflected there, I, I sort of identify with it in this, in this commitment to, uh, to appreciating the sort of um, c complexity of traditions because lives are also complicated. Yeah, I agree. I think if your main goal is to figure things out, then you don't want to be, you don't want to start out on that journey solidly aligned with one conclusion already or the other. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, I like that. All right. Well, next we have a consideration of atheism as it can be explored through the evocative and narrative qualities of literature. Uh, so Vittorio Montemaggi, Montemaggi, I hope I said that right, undertakes this topic through an examination of Dante's comedy. Excellent. The classics. <laughs> so... Um, as Montemaggi immediately acknowledges, there isn't any atheism per se in Dante's story, but it can suggest ways to think about affinities between Christianity and atheism nonetheless. So this is really mm. interesting. Tell us about some of these ideas. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's a really beautiful essay and in the way that I think you've you've pointed to. Vittorio Montemaggi is a, is a really uh, great, rigorous, well-regarded scholar of Dante. So that's the sort of background that he brings to this essay. And he's, he's, you know, he's written, I think, multiple books on Dante that are really rich. And the thing he's thinking through here is the sort of surprising, surprising connection. So as you say, there, there isn't atheism exactly in the, in the modern sense of the term in uh, Dante's Commedia. But Vittorio is, I, I guess, sort of refracting the questions around atheism, almost like a kaleidoscope using Dante's poetry as a lens. And so one of the things he attends to in a way that uh, it's characteristic of his work in a, way that, in a way that I just love is the what the language is doing, what the poetry of the Italian um, and, the, and, the, and the rhythms of it, what that communicates and what the arc of the story that that Dante describes, because it's, again, it's not just a sort of series of theological claims. It's, it's a narrative that's expressed in carefully chosen poetic language that has theological resonances and it relates to Dante's own experience as a, as a sort of Christian in his, in his era, but it, it can't be reduced. It can't be reduced to the theoretical claims. So one of the things that, that, Montemagi explores over the course of this beautiful chapter is thinking about hope. So he suggests that there are descriptions in, in the Commedia of p 
people experiencing despair and maybe especially uh, despair over uh, the possibility of relationship with God. And he explores the idea of Matamaji that, that this kind of despair that Dante depicts it could be could could suggest that that's what atheism might consist in. So rather than mainly being about being about the sort of theoretical claims that one believes and one's committed to, that uh, there would be a sort of ex- experience of despair that um, that would be at the at the heart. One of the things. So in keeping with this section of the collection, as I said, it's about sort of complicating, scrambling the way in which oppositions between religion and atheism gets set up. One of the things he points to is that the distinction that Dante suggests between uh, the hopeful and the despairing doesn't need to map on in a way that's that's really direct one-to-one correspondence between the distinction between Christians and atheists. And so he's he's sort of encouraging the reader to consider that uh, that there might be a sort of energy of hope that that could could constitute an affinity that's unexpected between people who think of themselves as atheists and people who think of themselves as religious. That maybe there's something about this experience of hope that could be shared, even if the ideas that these these people have, these communities have, might be might be different. Wonderful. So chapter eight continues this theme of approaching philosophical questions about atheism through literature. George Pattison looks at the way Dostoevsky's brothers Karamazov thinks through the pros and cons of both atheism and Christianity, showing how these contemplations have relevance far beyond just his context of 19th century Russia. So can you tell us about this? Yeah, so I think similarly to Vittorio's chapter on Dante, George Pattison in this chapter is trying to think about what atheism might mean in a genre other than declarative prose. So this is something I know you were telling me before we started recording that, that you've thought a lot about. And one of the things I find really exciting in conversation with Pattison and Montemaggi and others is think about what atheism might mean as it's inflected by different, different genres, different forms like, uh, like, you know, lit- literature, film, music, visual art, and other and other things, because I, I think the examples that people tend to go to for atheism involve people n- making s- statements about the existence or non-existence of God. But just as just as uh, as I said earlier, r- religious sacred texts uh, they involve often poetry, apocalypse, narrative, history, other genres besides declarative theology. Um, I think we we could think about how atheism uh, is inflected through the study of literature. So Pattison is focusing on on the the Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky, and the thing that he really draws out is that Dostoevsky's characters are complicated in the way that I, I think I've, I, your listeners should probably know that I understand my own life is complicated in a similar way. And so for Dostoevsky, rather than rather than having people who have a sort of simple or simplistic uh, certainty about atheism or religious faith, Dostoevsky's characters struggle struggle with with these these things. And Pattison unpacks that with a kind of fine grained texture that. Uh, that I think just just needs to be read and experienced uh, rather than summarized in, in this way. But the sort of main point is 
is the sort of key point of this section of the of the collection, as I've said, which is that the division between religion and atheism isn't as neat as as it's off, often made out to be. That this experience that Dostoevsky Dostoevsky describes of struggle complicates that distinction in a way that opens possibilities for really rich conversation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we were talking about how literature is kind of a different mode for thinking mm. through some of these questions. As you were saying, instead of declarative texts that tell the reader what the writer thinks or what they should think, um, literature has this way of allowing people to just kind of experience and then think it through almost as if they were the ones experiencing it. So mm. wonderful. Well, David, I've taken up a lot of your time, uh, but in the few minutes we have left, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Yeah, uh, I've got a lot of stuff. I've got a lot of stuff on the go. As I was telling you before we started recording, I uh, my my work has had a forcible hiatus because I I suffered a traumatic brain injury the year before last, and my recovery has been really slow. Um, but thankfully, within the last month or two, even though I I still have uh, pain from it. It's a lot less than it used to be. And I'm able to think again, which I have have come to appreciate as a blessing. And so for that reason, I'm, I'm really getting back into my writing in a serious way. And it's just been so energizing. So one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is this question about, about um, atheist, atheist, secular, non-religious identities in relation to genres and forms apart from declarative prose. So I, along with my uh, colleague at ACU, Lexi Eichelboom, I'm co-director of a grant project on secular art and spiritual understanding, which has a lot of really cool dimensions. There's a, there's an empirical study that's being run by some experimental psychologists in the UK. In Australia, we've had uh, a really rich and wonderful collaboration that we've, that we've set up over the last year between visual artists and an interdisciplinary working group. We've been thinking together about how art, art making practices might, might be similar in some respects, or maybe might have interesting differences to the types of practices that religious communities engage in, especially understood in terms of ritual. So we've been thinking about this category of ritual, this turn to practice in the study of religion as a, as a lens to try to open up a, a new understanding of um, yeah, the, the experience of, of people in relation to art that, that doesn't present itself as having anything to do with religion or, or spirituality. So that, that's something I'm, I'm working on. We're working on a co- an edited collection around that. Uh, I, in my, in my sort of own, uh, private writing practice, I've been really wrestling with questions that are, that are, feel really urgent to me about right-wing populism and its relationship to political theology. So, uh, you know, I'm based in Australia. I uh, lived f- uh, for most of my life as a young person in the, in the U.S. And so I feel really connected to these different political cultures as well as the U.K. where I lived for five years. And in each of these, in each of these countries, but especially in the U.S., there are right-wing movements that are often informed or justified in theological terms. And as I've seen how how... Uh, the politics has gone over the last six or seven years in in these English speaking countries. I've been really heartbroken at the way in which it seems like democracy is broken in some sense. That there are anti democratic movements. They're uh, repressive against racial and sexual minorities, other minorities, 
Um, and I feel like it's, it's kind of an emergency and I, I'm, I'm working through the way in which my background in political theology and actually these, these impulses that I've described as animating this collection on atheism, how that, how that could, uh, open, open new perspectives on, on this. Um, and in particular, I'm thinking about the, so there are, you know, pacifist traditions, uh, in, in, a number of different religious traditions that emphasize the importance of, of peace and nonviolence. All of that is really interesting, rich. It's informed um, thinkers who aren't religious, like Judith Butler, who think about nonviolence. Uh, but one of the things Butler Butler's work uh, points out when they write about about um, nonviolence, they present it as as something that's conflicted and ambiguous. Uh, rather than rather than a sort of state that can be directly achieved, so I'm trying to think about what that would mean for the resources within within political theology for thinking about the the importance of conflict. So, as I've said in my own life and my work, I found conversation, um, you know, mutual understanding, really rich and important. But sometimes, uh, when you have people enacting racist laws, it's important to resist them politically. And uh, so I've been thinking about thinking about that, and all of this it, it lies in the background. Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. Was that fro- fro- <laughs> frog in frog in my throat? Let me oh. let me uh, pick it up again. So, okay, uh, all, all of this is 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 the background to my current book project, which uh, which I hope to write over the next year, which is about miracles, the sort of revisiting the early early modern debate over miracles. In order to argue that really it it has a political significance that's often neglected in the sort of abstracted arguments about whether it's rational to believe that an event violating the laws of nature has occurred through divine intervention, I think that in Hume, but also earlier and later reflection on miracles, uh, that orientation towards the miraculous is and and anxieties about that are political in a way that's really important. So I want to revisit all all of that conversation in order th- to think about the role of amazement or radical surprise in politics and to think about how the style of thinking that I've described at the intersection between the religious and the secular, how that can help us to think about how democratic politics actually works and how we can make it work better. So that's the, that's the sort of big next project. Oh, fantastic. Um, that sounds really great. I hope that I can have you back on this show here to talk about uh, those projects when they come to fruition, because yeah, uh, I'd really like to read them. <laughs> yeah, thanks. That's really kind. All right. Well, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. As I've already mentioned a few times, uh, your book was full of so many really interesting ideas. They're very new to me. I encourage listeners to check out the book and get into these ideas in more depth and more detail. But uh, yeah, really happy that you were able to join me today. So thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. All right. Well, until next time, goodbye.